Brought to you by Leaving the Ring, all boxing, no filter. Don't forget, we're, we're live every Monday night on YouTube and Blog Talk. Oh! That's another knockdown! He's not getting he up, Jim! He get up. He's not getting up, Jim! He get he's not getting up! No, he's been knocked out! It's over! Mamma mia, he's done it! Anthony Joshua defeats Vladimir Klitschko! AJ does it in style! Beaten down, hopeless, without an answer, and Lomachenko has made Rigondeaux quit! It's Fisgianato's Evan Rutkowski. He's a good boy, you know. Hello, fight fans. It is Thursday, May 21st, and this is the Fisgianato's podcast on the Leave It in the Ring radio network. I'm your host, Evan Murkowski, former HBO sports marketing executive, giving you my take on what's happening in the sport of boxing on your screen and behind the scenes. Email me at fistinados at yahoo.com. Follow me on Twitter at fistinatospod. We are brought to you by Ring Magazine and ringtv.com. All right. We will do the review section where we'll look at some UFC stuff mostly And then at the end, I won't have a preview section this time, but next episode, there will be a preview section with odds on actual real fights happening on ESPN. I'm very psyched for that. But let's start off the review section with a promo for a local business. I bought and have thoroughly enjoyed a bunch of coffee from Tectana Coffee, which is sort of a high-end coffee roaster here in Los Angeles, but they ship everywhere. They are offering all of their coffees at wholesale prices, and so if you are a coffee nerd like I am, uh, nerdy coffees basically available at half the normal price, so you're getting a gourmet coffee for like less than what you pay for a pack of Dunkin' Donuts or Starbucks coffee. Tectonic, uh, tectoniccoffee.com is the website. It's great stuff. Great story behind the people there. I don't know them personally, but I've heard their story before. Uh, as told, uh, I, I've read some stories. I've heard them. I've heard them being interviewed too. Cool stuff. Check it out if you like coffee. It's it's really good stuff for the price. Uh, and like I said, no boxing to review, obviously. But let's start with covering a few important comps. Let's start with Saturday, May 9th, where UFC 249 happened. This was the first major sporting event to happen since the pandemic started. It's worth talking about both how they pulled off the show as well as how it did in terms of numbers. Let's start with just how it looked on TV and how they pulled off the show, then move on to the numbers. Look, as far as how this came off on TV, the logistics, all that kind of stuff, the way they did it, there was a Saturday, May 9th pay-per-view followed by a Wednesday night show exclusive to ESPN+. Plus. And then a Saturday, May 16th ESPN show, which was also on ESPN+. Plus. In terms of just enjoyment of watching sort of sports and MMA, I'm a casual MMA fan who watched a lot more of it when boxing was only on HBO and Showtime, and there were a lot less total boxing dates. And I really enjoyed watching all three cards, especially the pay-per-view. You know, for what I'm sure were some of the most challenging training circumstances that any of these fighters have ever faced, they all came in. They performed pretty well, or at least of the fights I watched. I didn't watch every single fight on every single card. 
but the stuff I watched, all entertaining. Uh, one fighter missed weight by like four pounds or something like that, but just about everybody else made weight, or they agreed to fight at a weight class above their normal weight class. The show was shot, so most of the time you couldn't tell there was an empty crowd. Um, the crowd was darkened. Uh, the lack of crowd noise did impact the viewing experience, and parts of it in ways that were good, parts of it not so good. I mean, you could hear the shots land much louder, and you could hear advice from the corners uh, and the announcers, apparently, if you're a fighter, in, in a much more audible way. It, there was actually one instance where the fighters could hear the commentators and it impacted the way they fought. Um, I think all that stuff's interesting. Still, the core experience of watching the fights, I mean, the guys fought hard. The ladies did too, for that matter. And you didn't feel like too much was missing by the crowd noise. There were moments where there were momentum shifts where you would be used to hearing a crowd and you didn't hear it. The corner advice and, and it was interesting. I, I thought that was pretty interesting. Um, but the overall viewing experience, it, they shot it so you didn't feel like you were missing anything. It wasn't really that bad. I thought it was pretty good, you know, pretty good overall. And, and it improved in each as, it, as each show went on. Um, let's talk about the positive test. There was one positive test. And I think the important thing here, and this is something that all sports were watching, we had to get to a point with sports where one positive test doesn't mean you're calling off the game and calling off the season or quarantining your entire team. If it's, if it's a team sport and then quarantining all the teams that previously played. And I think we, we hit that, we hit that here. So the fighter, Jacques Souza, he did test positive and they didn't, shut down the fights. Everything happened. And as of right now, we're approaching two weeks after the, the positive test. We haven't seen yet. I mean, I guess we'll know in the next week or so whether it's spread to other people. But as of right now, it was only the three tests, the three positive tests. That was it. Jacare, who tested positive, he clearly was not social distancing during fight week based on some of the video we've seen. Um, but we don't know if that had a dramatic effect yet or not. I've actually read the document that UFC created for this event. It was really impressive. Other people, I know Andy Foster has given a couple interviews where he said it was impressive and he's very comfortable with it. I think they've improved it since. Uh, there were reports early on the UFC did not follow every single protocol that they set. Um, here's what I'd say that when every sport goes for the first time, no matter which sport it is, there will be people who don't follow the protocols because they've been either working in that sport if they're on the crew or playing that sport if they're the athlete for years and you are changing your routine in a pretty drastic way for this. You know, fight week and social distancing in terms of combat sports, these are not things that naturally go together. So you are going to run into those issues. But I think... For the most part, they did really, really well. And I'd say early on, you got to cut everybody a little bit of slack. I know that doesn't, that's not like the safest, most politically correct thing to say, but it's true. You, you, you got to get people changing habits that have been ingrained 
in them for, you know, many, many of these people for years. So I don't mean cut them slack, make it not safe. I just mean everybody's going to have to change what they've been doing for years. And, and, and that's okay. So until there's a vaccine, if we want business to resume, we just need to figure out how to reopen. This is something that's going to go on in every business, in every facet of life when we reopen. You have to change learned behaviors you know, to adjust to this, to be safer, and that's what everybody should be doing. This is really all about, like, as sports come back, really what every sport has to deal with is tolerance of risk and testing. That's, those are basically the two things that you have to do when you're dealing with this virus. You know, I understand, especially with certain athletes, we don't know the long-term effects of this thing yet, and it could affect your athletic career. So I understand if you don't want to do something, you know, if you, if you don't want to fight or if you don't want to play baseball or football or whatever it is because you're worried about these kind of effects, not just potentially dying. Because let's be honest, most athletes are not the people who are at high risk for dying. That's just not who's at risk, basically. So you aren't necessarily, I don't think you're risking your life in a way that someone in a really at-risk bracket is risking their life when dealing with this virus. However, you are risking potentially, given that we don't know the long-term effects, you are risk, you're, you're putting your athletic career at risk, and that's obviously what's going to make you the most money you know, it's why you're playing professional sports. So I do understand being overly cautious in, in both scenarios, in both scenarios. Um, but overall, I think the UFC offered a great blueprint for how to come back, and they're going to continue to update it. They're, they're being the most aggressive sport in terms of putting on cards. Um, that's the best we're going to do right now. They did not have a uh, – they tested a lot. They did not overwhelm local hospitals. I think the three tests, the three positive tests they had made up a whopping 15% of the positive tests in Jacksonville for that day. Um, so, you know, this is how sports are going to have to reopen. There's going to be positive tests. It's how they respond to it. And um, I'm not going to say the UFC is like the absolute standard bearer here, but they were first. They did a lot of things right. The protocols were good. And they put on a good entertaining show. Okay, let's move on and talk numbers here for a second. So before I give the pay-per-view number or just the overall numbers associated with the pay-per-view and the other shows, if you're unfamiliar with how a UFC pay-per-view event works, typically there are 10 to 13 fights on the card. The first few fights are on ESPN Plus or Fight Pass uh, behind some kind of paywall. Then starting at 8 p.m. Eastern, there's usually four fights on the prelims card, which is on ESPN. Then that's over at 10 p.m. And at 10 p.m., the pay-per-view portion starts, which is five fights. So for this, the UFC aired the entire prelims on ESPN starting at 6 p.m. Eastern and going until 10 p.m. Eastern. Then it was the pay-per-view card that you could order exclusively through ESPN+. Plus. Remember, you cannot order the pay-per-view through any other way, including your cable system. Uh, you can only order it on ESPN+. 
The prelims ended up being the number two cable show of the night, averaging 1.154 million viewers. It crushed everything in terms of men 18 to 49 and people 18 to 34. In case you're wondering, Live PD on A&E was the number one show. If you count the networks, SNL was the top overall show. Um, and ABC's World News Tonight also had a strong showing. UFC beat both of those in people 18 to 34, which is a fairly major accomplishment. Now, if you look at the entire four-hour window, these numbers, they're strong, but they're not like, oh my God, super impressive. But the impressive part comes when you start to dig deeper. So if you just look at the 8 to 10 p.m. window, when the prelims would normally be for a normal uh, UFC pay-per-view event, the show actually averaged 1.466 million viewers, uh, and then the show was simulcast on ESPN Plus, the entire show, and apparently an additional 500,000 viewers watched this on ESPN Plus. The TV portion alone peaked close to 1.6 million. So if you isolate the normal two-hour time period, ESPN topped 18 to 49, 25 to 54, and the 18 to 34 demos. This is all before we get into pay-per-view buys. The pay-per-view had 700,000 buys. This is all per John O'Rand of the Sports Business Journal. There's a lot to unpack here. So let's do that and let's get into the logistics. Let's let's do that. Let's just do that. The most notable part for me out of this whole thing, even with some impressive viewership numbers, is the show did 700,000 pay-per-view buys. You know, I know there's a lot of UFC haters out there or MMA journalists that will just start all this by saying Dana lies about all this stuff and you can't trust anything uh, that that's here. I will go ahead. I'm pretty sure ESPN, not the UFC, leaked those numbers to Orand. ESPN can't lie in any official statement. I don't think they would lie in terms of leaking either when it comes to specific numbers like these. Um, and I think it, it, it's it's. It's pretty, I mean, Oran basically said it, but didn't say it, that that's where it came from. But we'll, you know, we'll, we'll get to that in a second. The 700,000 buys, I mean, it's just really, really impressive for a card where the main event was a replacement fighter and an interim title fight. I mean, this is supposed to be Khabib versus Tony Ferguson. Khabib obviously beat Connor to get the title. He is a big star, but he is not an established A-side pay-per-view uh, superstar. He just beat Connor, So now he has that rub with him. Tony's a huge rival of his and is a great fighter, but hasn't been a champ, isn't considered a pay-per-view star. To be honest, 700,000, that might have been a decent number in a normal world had Khabib fought Tony on pay-per-view. You know, the fact that the quote-unquote star was out of the fight and it still did this well was super impressive I mean, the TV numbers, when you factor in that over 2 million people were watching this on all platforms at its peak, it converted 700,000 of those to buy the fight. And that's incredible work. And especially at a price point of $65, you know, during a pandemic with these levels of unemployment, also pretty impressive. My guy over at Bloody Elbow, John Nash, has done some really impressive work covering this. He estimates that the show could have made the UFC in the area of $40 million profit which is obviously something that matters greatly both to the UFC and Endeavor, which has been in the news for a lot of reasons recently. Look, other numbers of note, the UFC card on Saturday, May 16th, averaged 
198 million viewers. It was the number two cable show of the night. There were obviously no numbers for this show exclusive to ESPN Plus midweek. Uh, the prelims for the UFC card on May 16th averaged 690,000 viewers. It was the number five show of the day for cable. These are really good. They're not incredible like the show a week earlier. I'll also say that the show, both these are all both on ESPN Plus as well, and these numbers do not reflect that audience. So it could have been a few hundred thousand more viewers. Not a ton to see here. I mean, we're still seeing a bump. If you compare these to other UFC shows, we are still seeing a bump in viewership from what you'd normally expect there. Um, and, and another example of that, NASCAR went on Sunday, and I believe was up like 30 or 40%. It averaged 6.3 million viewers on that Sunday, and it wasn't even sort of a huge show. So, look, I, I just say that to give context. There's obviously not a lot of crossover for boxing in terms of NASCAR, but the point is any live sporting events on right now are worth a look. More people are watching them. People are starved for this stuff. It's improved numbers due to lack of competition. Let's talk about what it means for boxing for a second here. It's tempting to say that this was just the first thing back, so it's going to do well no matter what. And I mean, anyone who has listened to this podcast since the pandemic starts knows my feelings on this. Aggressive behavior will be rewarded. The UFC was aggressive. It got rewarded. Individual sports have a much easier pathway to coming back regularly. Boxing ratings will likely improve if they come back before other sports. It appears that we will be seeing that soon. Although, you know, look, we're now seeing NASCAR return. We're seeing some golf return. Um, I think we will see tennis soon. Look, Boxing is going to come back with some warm-up fights. UFC came back with deep pay-per-views and, and, and really competitive fights up and down the card. You know, they put on their normal product. In fact, they put on a good version of their normal product. Um, Twice-a-week boxing, I'm not sure that's immediately going to get better ratings. I think the data points will be really interesting. You know, But it's something. And even if it's mismatches at first... It's better than nothing. I mean, there will be other live sports on TV when boxing comes back. There will almost certainly be major live sports on TV back when boxing really starts to put on good fights. I talked about this a lot last episode. Um, I still think when boxing puts on its first pay-per-view, its first major fight, and I do think any major fight at this point is going to be on pay-per-view, we'll be lucky to see anything not on pay-per-view, that, that is a strong fight between two names. So I think anything coming back good is going to be on pay-per-view. It appears that will be Lomachenko-Lopez, but Top Rank is said that they're going to put on in September with or without a gate. Spence Garcia, I'm sure, also is in that conversation. That's been talked about for early fall as well. We'll see which one goes first. And I do think there will be a, a boost for whoever puts on that first really good fight. But let's get to the deep dive this week. Deep dive. We are going to take a look at the zone. We're going to do. We're going to look at why they're going to likely be showing boxing last out of all the major networks involved in boxing, at least here in the U.S. What are some of the determining factors for them in their decision making process, and what I think is a moment um, 
you know, that's coming that will be an extra challenge for them uh, as they come back. And everyone listening to the point, you know, to the podcast at this point, they know what DAZN is. They know they're one of the major distributors of boxing in the U.S. You know, if you look at what they did last year in terms of value for the consumer, especially compared to what you spend, they gave some of the most value of any network, um, you know, regardless of price, but definitely when you consider the price. They put on some great stuff. They put on a lot of stuff, though. They put on a lot of stuff that, in addition to the great stuff they put on, they also put on some stuff that wasn't great. Um, but they they covered it with volume. They they did a lot of things. If you look at what boxing or at what DAZN has done in 2020, and especially like in response to the you know COVID nineteen virus. It's actually, in my opinion, it's in direct contrast to what they did in 2019 and, you know, the few months of 2018. Pre-virus, they were challenging the status quo in an aggressive, aggressive way. And since this whole thing has started, they've been very tepid. And some of that is understandable, but I do think they've missed a huge opportunity. Um, So look, let's just start by stating the obvious, like, when you're dealing with a global pandemic, there is no playbook for it. Um, you know, let's add to that by saying something I mentioned last episode where trends that were happening anyways usually get exacerbated during events like these. You know, so as long ago as this may seem, and remember, in terms of real time, it wasn't actually that long ago, but it feels like a year ago, back in February, DeZone had put on Mikey Garcia when he beat Jesse Vargas in his first fight there. And there were all these various stages of negotiations to make Canelo versus BJ Saunders and Triple G to fight Zara Meta, both in that spring window. Canelo would be on Cinco de Mayo weekend, Triple G in April or May. Anthony Joshua was set to fight June 20th against Pulev. Canelo fight was significant because it was to launch the DAZN worldwide app where DAZN would now be available in every country for subscription. The content and, and price would be different in most countries, but you know, for most of boxing, they, they have the worldwide rights. That's what they've been aggressive in doing. And you know, this is a major moment that DAZN had been working for, for you know, working towards for a while. And the reason you have stars like Canelo and AJ, I've, I've been over this in this podcast before, on your roster and the reason why you try to get their worldwide rights is because they offer the best way to come into a new market and get subscribers right away. They're global superstars. They have Canelo's world, worldwide rights, and I believe they have most of AJ's, although obviously, importantly, not the UK. So they had pretty much everything lined up so that Canelo and Triple G were going to fight in September, and then... While AJ was going to have to deal with some mandatories, there's this looming possibility that he would actually fight Tyson Fury in a fight that obviously you're, we're assuming Fury beats Wilder again, and we're assuming DeZone would get the right to that fight, neither of which are close to guarantees in my opinion, but DeZone had lined up the potential for some really big fights with all their stars in fights that probably were talking subscription drivers. All of this is really the culmination you know, of this great boxing question and experiment, which is to say, like, is boxing the worldwide sport that can be the driver to grow a network? 
And boxing on the whole has been focused on a few countries where the most loyal customers are asked to pay premium prices for premium events. And I mean, it does travel well, but traditionally boxing's just been so extremely unorganized and loosely confederated with very little overall infrastructure. And that led to DAZN thinking, hey, here's a sport we can exploit in a mutually beneficial way. And I think they're absolutely correct in identifying boxing as that sport. Um, it was out there for the taking. I mean, if you can add some infrastructure and you can pay the prices to get the top quality content on your network and then you can take it worldwide, you know, it's out there for you. Like this is, this is there to get like, this isn't, I mean, obviously you're taking a risk by doing it, but you know, this is an intelligent risk. Um, but you know, here we are in a global pandemic where, you know, the best laid plans for everyone are gone. It's not just like DAZN is screwed over, everyone's screwed over. But this is going to be extra tough on DAZN for a couple different reasons. I mean, they're not a public company. They're owned by a billionaire who, I'm assuming, like many billionaires, took a major personal hit during the pandemic. It's not shareholders who, who, who make this decision now. It's like... If they need more money for content, you know, it comes right out of that billionaire's pocket, basically. You know, they were also, at least in the U.S., operating at a really healthy loss as they built up their brand. And times like these aren't really great times for companies operating at a major loss. And there's lots of them out there that are trying to build. They're just, this isn't the time to do well. It is totally understandable when you think about it from that perspective that they hit the pause button. All networks are going to have to face daunting realities. Like this is not unique to the zone. I've explained this before on the pod, but it's worth repeating. I mean, every major sporting event that comes back, especially those with huge TV audiences, now faces huge competition from other sporting events. And believe me, no major golf or tennis tournament wants to be up against an NFL game or a major college football game, but they may not have a choice. You know, on the whole, there should be more viewership because people, they're missing live sports. And now we're going to cram so much stuff into a smaller window of time. You know, for advertisers, that means you previously expected to get audience X for your brand when you're doing ad spends. And now there's enough competition for certain events. You may not get that audience that you wanted. And if you're getting audience Y, which is less, here's the thing. You've probably built in viewership guarantees into your expensive ad buys. So if these events don't hit certain marks, either you get make good ads or you get dollars back. And that's a big time issue for major networks, at least in the traditional space. DAZN doesn't have that issue, right? No, wrong. DAZN might even have more issues from a cram schedule. They do ads, but it's not an ad-based model. It's a monthly subscription issue. I mean, if a European soccer league, they just announced today that they were going to be streaming some Bundesliga. You know, if a European soccer league plays a condensed schedule, well, DAZN makes their money from having fans of the league subscribing for multiple months at a time. Cramming 10 games into a month where you previously played four or five just means you're adding costs for DAZN, but you're not adding any revenue. 
because they need people to keep subscribing month after month. They'd rather have those games spread out. And this leads to sort of my first major issue for DAZN, especially when it comes to boxing fans. When you look at their worldwide subscription base, boxing may not actually be as important of a sport to them as we think it is here in the States. They probably get a lot more subscribers by utilizing that strategy of foreign rights for other major sports. I mean, they're doing Bundesliga, um, but, you know, English Premier League, they don't have in England, but they do have it in Germany. You know, or they do the, they do second tier leagues, but in a in a mature country like Japanese soccer and baseball. That's in a market. Not only is it fully accepting of streaming for sports, you know, it's it it's not going to compete with some of the top leagues in the world, but it's a strong league, and everybody in Japan wants to watch it. And the crazy thing is. We always consider boxing to be the top sport, it isn't, but it just, it just may not, in terms of worldwide subs, and to be fair to boxing, it hasn't had the chance to do it yet because they haven't launched worldwide, but right now there's more important things. That much is clear. You know, DAZN might actually treat boxing similar to the way that Fox and ESPN treat it which is while it's still important, they need to wait and see what the NFL does or what college football does or Major League Baseball does before they can have a strategy for how to utilize boxing. And I made this point many times before, like that's okay for boxing as a sport. But in times like these, you don't want to be stuck too far back in line because that usually ends up meaning your budget gets cut first or your schedule and strategy gets figured out last. And that's not ideal. You know, another challenge, as I see for DAZN, and quite frankly, this has been one of the ones boxing people have complained about since DAZN entered the market, is what they've done in terms of their pay scale, not for their just for their fighters, but in terms of overall vet costs. And this gets manifested in a lot of different ways, but ultimately I see this as being a really major challenge right now. Because if you do a really hardcore cost analysis of what value fighters and certain fights bring to DAZN. I mean, Canelo and Anthony Joshua are probably the only major subscription drivers for the network. They're both probably being underpaid, perhaps even significantly. And everyone else is probably being overpaid, like maybe really overpaid. Right now, it's a very blanketed statement. I'm leaving out a lot of nuance here. Let's take a deeper look. You know, but Eddie Hearn has kind of explained this concept in interviews numerous, numerous times. Like, he hasn't said it that way, but it does, this is what he's talking about. I mean, like, ultimately, when you're to zone, you need to put on fights between Canelo and AJ to, you know, to an extent, Triple G, maybe some other fighters with smaller but loyal fan bases, maybe the World Boxing Super Series for core fans. Like, those fights have the benefit of reducing churn, um, you know, keeping your subscribers happy. But you need the superstars to put on the fights to get the subscribers. When you look at the stay busy fights, it may not matter whether those events cost five hundred thousand or five million. And DAZN spending much closer to five million than they are to five hundred thousand on those events. In some cases, a lot more. And it's true, DAZN had to penetrate. If if they wanted to penetrate the market, they had to overpay. But now they need to keep those costs down. And the problem is most fighters don't like hearing that. And they may not want to fight if they face huge pay cuts. 
you know, the reason they came over and took a chance on DAZN is because they got paid a lot more, not because they cared about the business future of DAZN. You know, it's easy to say publicly that you can get the same money, but it needs to be a proper fight, or you take less money to get the same level of fight, but it's hard to execute that. You know, it's also it's it's really easy to say, hey, Mikey Garcia, Jesse Vargas, like we did that whole fight car for twelve million bucks or whatever it was, and we're not going to do that anymore because most hardcore boxing fans are going to be like, well, why did you do that in the first place? I mean, I, I really like that fight; it's something to watch in February, but it's clearly not a subscription driver. And to be fair, to design, some of the fights they've been putting on, especially smaller weight classes, already were at a pretty fair cost to, you know, fair fight purses for the fighters. But I mean, when you get to the glamour divisions, it's easy to say we aren't getting value from having Demetrius Andre fight Luke Keeler. But who's he going to fight? I mean, if Canelo and Triple G already have matchups, and then after those matchups, they're going to fight themselves, you know, fight each other, basically. Who is Andre going to fight? Like, you either need to make that Charlo fight for big money and, and hope it drives subs or find a meaningful middleweight. I mean, nine months ago, that would have been a lot easier. But now, a lot of the DAZN middleweights seem to be fighting at super middleweight. And I want to get into the specific issues DAZN will have with all their top fighters. But the big issue, the, the big sort of point here is what, at what point do you say no to each fighter? Like, how far down on the list of opponents do you go before you say no? Because here's the real issue. Yes, fighters are on a timeline. They can't fight forever. But DAZN is on a timeline, too. And DAZN is probably on a much shorter timeline than fighters are. Like, what if all your top fighters say no to the fights that you're proposing at the price you're willing to pay? In terms of subscriptions, maybe it doesn't matter if certain fighters with higher profiles sit out, but how can you enforce all this when you can't even get Canelo and Triple G to fight each other next? I mean, either way, you, you, you have to do another fight season. Like, that got real traction. It built real subscriptions. If you do it worldwide, I'm sure it would, you know, build on that kind of scale as well. I mean, I think it would do really well. But you can't tell fighters they need to take tougher fights for less money and then also think that you're going to build out a robust fight season schedule. And more importantly, you can't expect that to be a rousing success on the timeline you need it to be on. You know, one of the things this pandemic has done is it changed the timelines for everything. And this is every business. Like like I said earlier, we're about to see a ton of live sporting events happen in the fall, most of whom, uh, most of which are happening not when they were originally scheduled. And here's where we started to see some of the major conflict in terms of DAZN's strategy. The UFC tried to go in April and ultimately went in May reaping some pretty big rewards. If I were to zone, I'd have been that, you know, I would have been that aggressive. And that's not even playing Monday morning quarterback here. I've been really consistent on this issue since the day after the Rudy Gobert incident. Aggressive behavior will be rewarded. Going in August or September to start out doesn't really help you much. I mean, if you could put on a really big fight then, like, yeah, it'll work, but let's see if you can do that. Because you probably could have made some real traction and noise without even putting on AJ or Canelo just by going in May. The UFC didn't put on any stars. Now you have the opposite problem. Everyone's going to come back, not just in boxing or combat sports. 
every sport is coming back. Maybe Major League Baseball won't, but most of these things are coming back. You're competing against other distribution models that need this in the worst way. I mean, the cable system just lost major subscriptions during this pandemic because right, you know, right now as a whole, the best thing they have to offer is live sports, and those didn't happen during the pandemic. But those things are coming back, and cable systems are surely going to offer major incentives to sign back up for sports fans. The thing is, streaming services, which were really hot and stocks are at an all-time high, they all their production has halted during the pandemic. So you probably will see a lot of people who were subscribing to streaming services go back to cable or upgrade cable and downgrade streaming services. And maybe that matters a little bit less because DAZN is a live sporting event streamer. But you're still finding the narrative. And also the big streaming services done really well, but the niche ones haven't done quite as well in a pandemic. Look, this whole timeline issue is a big deal because these things are at odds with each other. On one hand, you're waiting to come back until many sporting events are already back. And you're not going to get this kind of bump from going early. You're competing against them. At least for casual sports fans, you are. And of course, you're coming back also after Top Rank and PBC are coming back to ESPN, Showtime, and Fox. I mean, they should all have a good timing advantage in terms of building a boxing audience that you won't have. And on the other hand, you're telling fighters that they have to take less money for the fights, but they have to fight tougher opponents for the same money. And to be fair, that's happening across the board, but top ranking PBC, like, they all have multiple years left on their contracts with ESPN and Showtime and Fox, how much runway do you really have, especially spending at these levels? Like, these timelines are all conflicting. Can you really put together good fights if you're telling the fighters they're not going to uh, get the same kind of pay? No, they're going to be upset. They're not going to take tougher fights. Or at least it may take time for that reality to set in. That's the important thing. I mean, if I was at DAZN, I would have pushed hard to go in May. I think the timeline you have to build a worldwide subscriber base is far more important than saving money, especially on bigger events. AJ said he'd do a fight in a studio. He said it publicly. Canelo might be willing to do that as well. We don't know. But he could have bought out the gate. It sounds crazy, but the UFC sold 700,000 pay-per-views without any kind of headlining star. What would AJ or Canelo would have done for you? What would they have done on a worldwide level in terms of subscriptions? Is that worth an extra 5 to $10 million bucks to buy out the gate? I'd say yes. You obviously have to put on cheaper fights in the interim. But if you're going to go worldwide, make this really strong push, like this is not the time to press pause. It's the time to be opportunistic. I know that sounds weird to say in a pandemic, but look, it's just openly true. It's not unique to combat sports. Many other companies and startups are aggressively finding, you know, trying to find out what the new normal is. How can they adjust their business model to fit it? And look, no one here is trying to minimize the effects of the virus. Like This is a complex problem, but at the same time, pausing now just to pause and take a, a step back, that's not the solution. I'm saying all this, and to be fair to DAZN, 
it doesn't mean I'm right. And apparently their sub-numbers have not taken a major hit. And they expect to be back with big events. And maybe they can get Canelo Triple G done in 2020. Maybe AJ can get into fights before the end of the year. Or more realistically, get a late summer or early fall fight and then fight again early in 2021. Like, the biggest issue here is that no one except the higher-ups at DAZN knows how much of a runway they truly have. I can't imagine it's that long. You don't want to be waiting for fighters to realize that they're not going to get what they want as you're facing a ticking time clock and a ticking runway. I mean, we, we don't know the answer to that. I know, I know they've met this week to discuss a lot of this stuff. And look, the COVID pandemic has hit everyone hard. You'd think that legacy businesses would have the toughest time pivoting, but all businesses that have needed to pivot have faced challenges. DAZN's not immune to that. If it had been me, I certainly would have been more aggressive. That didn't happen. Now, now we're going to see what patience is going to do for DAZN. And I hope it's not too late because right now ESPN Plus is the other major sports streaming service, you know, distributing live content that it owns or that it owns the rights to, to show. And ESPN Plus has almost 8 million subscribers right now. I know many of those are there for the bundle. But that number is undeniably good, if not great. And it doesn't mean there isn't room for more than one. But ESPN Plus does have boxing and MMA. I mean, they have soccer, too, and they're half the price. Like, if that's your competition, I, w- I would have come back. I, w- I would have done it. You know, hopefully we still get a monster schedule coming out in the fall. But these timelines, you have limited runway. You have fighters who aren't hearing what they want to hear. You got to make some of your biggest fights now. You have to have your biggest superstars fight several times in the next 12 months to make progress. These are conflicting. It's going to take a lot of work to get this done and to get that attention back. And the sporting schedules aren't going to normalize anytime soon. I mean, this is going to affect next year's schedules in a lot of ways. You know, the network that can innovate and make sure their sponsors are happy, make sure their customers are happy. That's the one that's going to win. This was a big year for DAZN, and I thought they had done a great job of lining up a lot of this stuff, but look, the... (laughs) These are real questions they face. And like I hope everyone succeeds, I hope they succeed. But this isn't what I would have done. Okay. No preview section this time. There will be a preview section next time. Looking forward to it. Very happy to hear that we are opening back up and at least easing some of these restrictions. I personally think this whole thing, especially if you have young kids or any, really, I guess any kind of kids, I think I have a four-year-old and a nine-month-old. I actually think the worst age to have would be like nine and nine to 12, because there you have to be a real teacher. Um, it, this, this is unsustainable, what we're doing right now. 
and we need something to take the pressure off. I mean, I, I can't wait to watch live boxing, even if it is hundred to one favorites to start out. You do. By the way, June. I, I think June for boxing, you get cut a little bit of slack. But we got to see some good fights in July. All right. Talk to everybody in two weeks. I'll be very excited to have a preview section, and then after that, we're going with our normal stuff. All right. Take it easy. Did you get what you was looking for?